right. Good evening, everyone. It's good to see everyone out tonight. I'm glad David gave the disclaimer so I didn't have to. Uh, then I am not the regular preacher. And you knew that. You know I was preaching tonight. You still showed up. So that's pretty good. I'll, I'll tell you, I'm just going to assume, though, that you know I was going to be here. Uh, if you want to go ahead and be turning to Matthew chapter 18, uh, the bulk of our lesson is going to kind of be our anchor text tonight, um, which in Matthew 18, uh, we come upon an occasion here where Jesus is being asked by his disciples, who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So Jesus brings in an unlikely role model, which I'm sure the, the disciples were not expecting, a, a child. So he, I'm sure the disciples are standing there. I'm sure they're scratching their heads. They're like, well, what's this little snot-nosed kid got to do with anything? But Jesus gives an answer that I'm sure they were not expecting. He says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus took what his disciples and were thinking and turned that way of thinking on its head. So he knew the desire behind this question was, um, who was going to have the most prestige within the kingdom of heaven? But to answer this question, Jesus brings in this child. So what's special about this child? Well, this child would have been at the bottom most rung of society. It would have had no clout, no influence on anything. Um, So Jesus is saying that if they want to be the greatest, they need to become like this child. So I'm sure the disciples are thinking, why? Why, what's so great about kids? Well, that's what we're going to talk about tonight, kids. But not in the way that you think we're going to talk about kids. We're going to talk about becoming like a child. Um, So raising kids is probably one of the biggest blessings I didn't know that I would ever have. I mean, you don't think about it until it happens. And then when you're there, you realize, oh, what you were missing out on. And, you know, I'm sure all parents know how much joy it brings you to see the wonder and excitement which... um, Children learn things, and they experience the world. So they see things. They have an openness in their heart to accept new things and new experiences. So, um, you know, children uh, approach everything with such wonder and zeal, and they are quick to believe new things. Um, And, you know, for instance, like kids can take that too far. They can be pretty gullible, too. So kids, close your ears. Um, Like, for instance, so I got to throw in a story, just kind of break to get everything going. So I was trying to think of, an, of uh, a story for my kids, but I'm not going to do that for, to them. But um, so for my childhood, so I remember when I was little, I guess I like pouted a lot, like, you know, do this little thing with your lips. Um, my parents always told me if I did that, a cow was going to step on my lip. Um, so for a long time in my childhood, I was afraid of this cow that was like lurking in the shadows, just waiting to step on my lip. And then I realized it was all fake. It wasn't true. Um, so kids are real quick to accept whatever their parents tell them. Um, you know, they generally place their trust in your, in their parents. They, they trust that we have their best interest in mind. And, um, you know, they generally don't question that, but they do question when you tell them to do stuff too. So they generally do what you say, but you know, there's a lot of questions with that. Um, so there's so much we can learn from our children. And I believe that Jesus here is commending um, some traits that children implicitly possess, um, that especially we as adults tend to lose as we age. Um, and I'm not saying that kids are perfect, because there are a lot of traits that kids have that are not great, and that's the ones adults usually keep. Those don't usually go away. Um, but it's the good traits that we need to seek to regain. Think traits like purity, 
unquestioning trust and in, in, in faith and the teachability and the humility that kids have. So Jesus is saying here that these are all hallmarks of those to whom the kingdom of heaven will belong. So tonight I want to take a journey through this passage and explore some of these childlike traits that Jesus is talking about and he's presenting as he answers this inquiry to his disciples. So a few things I'm just kind of inferring from this, but there's a few that he specifically um, talks about. The first one we're kind of inferring from from this is that uh, children have not yet learned prejudice. So uh, children, one of the beautiful things that you see with kids, especially young kids, is when they're introduced to a new child, they don't see, they, they might notice physical differences. And trust me, they're real blunt about that, but those physical differences have no consequence to them. Um, all they see is a new friend. They don't see race. They don't see their socioeconomic status. They just see, oh, this is a new playmate. And God expects his church to behave in this way as well. Um, so in James's letter, turn with me to the book of James, uh, he addresses a situation in a church where they are not behaving in this way. So in James chapter 2, um, he tells them that this behavior is inconsistent with faith in Jesus Christ. So read with me in James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. So in this hypothetical situation, which I'm sure is based on actual events, that he's addressing. The church, this church has two visitors. So there's someone who I'm, you know, bringing to today. He drove up in a nice car. He's got on really nice clothes, probably got a really nice watch. Uh, it's the first visitor. And then you got another guy who's probably homeless. He probably smells. He probably is not dressed very nice. Um, and everyone rushes to meet the rich man. They're there. He won't, they offer him the best seat. They say, sit here in this good place. But then the homeless man, they're just kind of like, well, you just go sit over there. Like, here, there's a good spot in the back row. Why don't you go take that one? Um, so this church is looking through earthly eyes. They're not looking at these men with God's eyes. So he continues, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man, are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So they were acting as judge. They were giving preferential treatment um, based on the outward attributes of these men. Um, and by doing this, they were bringing dishonor upon the poor man, who Jesus says, is that not the ones who, in the kingdom, who are promised to be the heirs of the kingdom? Um, and they were committing sin. Even by the law of Moses, they were committing sin. They, they said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And later on, he equates this sin to be no different than committing adultery or committing murder. So this church, which should be different than the world, was acting no different than the world would act in a similar situation. So we're called, as Christians, we're called to be different from the world. We are um, 
called to transform ourselves from the world. And part of that is changing our view from looking through a worldly lens to looking through, uh, to viewing others the way God would see them. And this is important because God shows no favoritism. And impartiality is one of the traits of God. Uh, Romans 2.11 and Ephesians 6.9 tell us that God shows no partiality to anyone. And we could be thankful of that. We could be thankful that he is completely and absolutely impartial with dealing with all people. So we see that showing favoritism is inconsistent with the character of God. Why is this important? It's because 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 tells us that we are to imitate me, which is Paul, as I imitate Christ. So therefore, us sharing God's impartiality is a way that we imitate Christ. And why is this important? It's because we cannot accomplish one of our biggest jobs as Christians, which is to seek and save the lost. So we're going back, go back to Matthew. So this is where my inference comes in. Uh, Back to Matthew chapter 18. And picking up in verse 10, he, he tells a parable. He says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So, bringing it back to the little ones. It's important not to despise any of these little ones because they're all important to God. Every soul has value to God. And God does not want any soul to perish. So, And we're given the, the charge in Matthew 28 19 that one of our jobs as Christians is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we cannot effectively accomplish our mission here on earth if we give preference to some people over others. Uh, God shows no preference to anybody, and we should show no preference to any soul because all souls are valuable to God. So we need to view others like children do. We need to overlook skin color. We need to overlook whatever wealth they might or might not have and see that person as a soul who is valuable to God and worth saving. So children play with other kids for that reason alone. It's a, they see a friend that they can play with. It's not for what that other child can do for them or where that friendship places them on the social hierarchy. It is they are friends simply because it's another person who's worth spending time with. Uh, and so Jesus continues down this discourse with his disciples. He moves on to the topic of forgiveness. So we can learn a lot about the true nature of forgiveness from children. So a child, which I'm sure y'all never, it never experienced this, but a child will have a fight with another kid. Uh, some injustice has occurred. Some wrong's been done against that child. And, you know, kind of depending on where the level and the drama spectrum is with that kid, you know, it's the world's over. They're not friends anymore. I'm not friends with them. I'm never talking to them again. Well, what happens two minutes later? They're friends again. They're great. Nothing ever happened and everything, uh, everything was just fine. Nothing bad happened between them. So this is the true nature of what forgiveness is supposed to look like. So just like children, we need to forgive and then act like nothing ever happened. Um, And it's not just a good thing to do, but it's something that we're commanded to do. Uh, In Matthew 6, 
14 through 15, Jesus gives the command for us to forgive others their trespasses. Because if we don't, God will not forgive ours. So like I said, this childlike forgiveness is the true nature of forgiveness that we're commanded to provide. We forgive others, and then we move on and act like nothing ever happened. So this means that we have to let go and never hold any grudges. Um, Holding a grudge is sin. In Ephesians 4.31, it tells us that we are to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So all of these are traits of grudge holding. So what is a grudge but bitterness that you hold against somebody? Uh, Which bitterness leads to wrath, leads to anger and clamor and slander against others. So yes, we're commanded to forgive, but we're also, the good reason for that is because unforgiveness can lead to so many other sins. And then later on in this discourse in 18, Jesus teaches that there's no limit on how many times that we should forgive. Um, Down in verse 23, or in... Uh, moving down in, the, in starting in verse 21, Peter asked Jesus how many times we should forgive others. And he even gives what he thinks is a generous time. He said, I'll forgive him seven times. But Jesus answers not just seven times, but 77 times. So, of course, this is not a literal 77 times, but he's saying there should be no limit on our forgiveness of others. So as we imitate Christ, we're called to take on this aspect of God as well, of God's character. So just as there is no limit to God's forgiveness of us, uh, we should have no limit in how many times we'll forgive others. So in Luke 6.36, he tells us to be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Ephesians 2.4 tells us that God is rich in mercy and saves us through his grace because of the great love he shows for us. So this is why we forgive. We forgive because we have love for others. Um, And as we work to transform our minds to be more like God's mind, we'll start to view others the same way he views others, which is through with a love for their soul. And as we take on this mindset, it becomes easier to forgive because we'll want to extend that same mercy that God has extended so graciously on us because he loves us. And this goes along with because we've forgiven, because we forgive because we have been forgiven. Uh, Ephesians 4.32, Ephesians 4, it says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So here we're commanded to be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, which to me carries the idea of having compassion for one another. Because with that compassion, we understand that we're all humans and we all fail. And, and that compassion at heart causes us to have a spirit of forgiveness with our brethren. And this spirit of forgiveness is important because it causes us, said, to want to forgive others because we have been shown so much mercy by God forgiving our sins. So in response to this question that Peter asked Jesus, uh, Jesus tells a parable of a servant who owed a massive amount of money. So much there was no realistic way he would ever repay that. So turn, we're going to read in Matthew 18, starting in verse 23. It says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. 
So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And you should not, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he could pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So this man was shown so much mercy. But where he went wrong is he would not extend that same mercy to to his friend. And you would think that the generosity showed to him uh, would have inspired that, but it didn't. And because he did not extend that same compassion to his friend, the king threw him in prison until he could repay his debt. So this is what happens. So we have been, we are the great debtors. We've been forgiven of so much by God. And God, all he asks is us to forgive others of the small debts that they have to us. And he says, if we don't do that, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And I think that's the key there. The key words are from your heart. So not just say you forgive, but we must really forgive and let any anger and bitterness go. So we need to forgive like children. We need to have let any ill will go and then move on to play together in harmony again. So after this, period of, a period of time elapses. I'm not sure the timing here, but um, Jesus is yet again faced with a situation where the disciples are hassling some kids. Uh, I'm assuming some parents, uh, it's in chapter 19, verse 13. Uh, I'm assuming some parents have brought these children to Jesus uh, for him to pray for him and to bl- pray for them and to bless them. And the disciples basically tell them, y'all need to go because Jesus is too busy to deal with y'all. Uh, but Jesus turns and rebukes them, saying, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. So here again for a second time, Jesus is commending a group of children. And you know, if Jesus says something twice, it's probably important. So, um, you know, I don't know the timing between the first incident and the second incident here, but I do think it is placed here strategically because we'll see, I'm going to show that I feel like it has bearing on the next section that we're going to read that Matthew puts in, in order in his narrative. So after this, Jesus is going to encounter a young man who seems willing and eager to follow him. So uh, read with me starting verse 16 of chapter 19. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what's good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. 
When the young man heard this, he went away very sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers or sisters, or father or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, or many who first will be last, and the last first. So, a young man comes to him who shows so much promise. Uh, he, he was willing, he wanted to follow Jesus, but he let the love of stuff keep him from becoming a true follower of Jesus. So, what does this have to do with children? Well, children have a complete dependence on their parents to meet their physical and emotional needs. And just like children are fully dependent on their parents um, to meet their needs, God wants us to have that same childlike dependence on him for all that we need. So throughout the Old Testament, we see time and again that God uh, reassured his people that he's in control and he can be trusted and dependent on to take care of them. All he asked was for their obedience. And every time something bad happened to God's people, it was because they continually did not trust him enough to obey him. You see, they relied on their own wisdom and their own power and their own and their selves to, uh, to accomplish what they wanted, not what God wanted. And every time, we see it never worked out well for them. So this concept of dependence on God, Jesus weaves all throughout his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Uh, so in his model prayer in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus asked for God to give us our daily bread. So from what I tell from my research, a, a more accurate translation of this, and one I like, uh, is it could be better translated as to give us our bread for today, which I think this wording better relays the idea of what Jesus is trying to relay through this, is that we're not asking for t- bread for tomorrow. We're not asking for bread for next week. We're asking for bread for today. So our, God, our dependence on God is a daily thing. Uh, we look to him to sustain us day by day, and we're content with what he provides for us. Uh, we're not looking for more. We're content with what we've been given, and we're content to trust in God's daily care of us. And God wants us to remember that even though we may have food pile up in our freezer that could last months, and there's stuff in there, and there's something like, who knows how long it's been in there, uh, We might have food in there, but God wants us to remember that he is the one who decides whether or not you get to use that food. Um, You know, think of the parable of the foolish farmer that we call the parable of the foolish farmer. We are dependent on God because God is in control of our lives. And he wants us to be content with what we're given. Um, Contentment was lacking in this rich young man. Um, He loved his stuff. And it doesn't necessarily say this, but he was not content to have less. He liked what he had, and he was not willing to be content with less 
to follow Jesus. And because he lacked that commitment, he missed out on the greatest treasure he could possibly possess. Further down in chapter 6, and we kind of touched on this this morning, uh, Jesus tells us not to be anxious because our Heavenly Father can be depended on to take care of us. Uh, Jesus says, why do you worry about worthless physical things? Because look at birds and flowers. They don't worry because they know God will take care of them. God will provide for them. So why do we worry about what we eat or drink or wear? Because we see how well taken care of these things are by God. So why should we worry that he's going to take care of us? So God wants us to seek him, and we depend on him that he will provide for us. And also, the concept of earthly parents fault comes in here too. So earthly parents want the best for their children. It says in, in Matthew 7, Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask? So if earthly parents only want the best for their children, how much better stuff can our Heavenly Father provide for us than what our earthly parents can provide? And God simply asks us to depend on Him. But this requires humility. Um, 1 Peter 5.5 says that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So dependence on God requires us to let go of our pride. And our reliance on ourselves. So this is a hard concept for us to comprehend as Americans. Because as a society, we're generally independent. We're self-reliant. We're ingrained that the American dream can be accomplished if you just work hard enough and you dedicate yourself. But being a Christian kind of causes us to think different than that. Um, We must humble ourselves like little children and understand that we are not dependent on ourselves. We are not self-reliant. We are fully dependent on God. So just like children have full trust in their parents, God wants us to have to put our full trust in him. So this section is started and finished with the same thought in chapter 18 and 19. So uh, it it begins and ends with the idea that to become the greatest, you must be like the least. So to answer so um, to answer this question, he uses the example of a child. So we have so much. We can learn from our children. Uh, To be worthy to inherit the kingdom of heaven, we have to emulate these positive traits. Not the bad traits, but the positive traits. Um, And we can learn so much from their openness to learning, their humility, and the trust they put in us every day. Um, So I hope this lesson has been profitable. Thanks for listening to me. Thanks for not throwing any tomatoes. Uh, But uh, but it's been... uh, it's been a great experience for me to get up here and do this. Um, I have one more question to ask tonight before we close. Is if you have not yet put on Christ by obeying the gospel call, why, have you, why haven't you done that? Uh, you know, if there's any questions, any further study that you can use, we're here for that. We're happy to help you with that. Baptistry's ready. Uh, you know, we're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised that we'll make it home tonight. Because, you know, honestly, your ride home could be the last time, last thing you ever do. So... There's no better time than now to make things right with God. You know, if you are stumbling, if you're struggling or in need of prayer, there's many people here who would be happy to talk with you, be happy to pray for you and with you. So we ask, if, if there's anything we could do for you, please come forward now as we stand, as we sit. Wonderful story of